0: I love that she likes to be held during worship and even announcements and things like that. Um, It's not my favorite when she decides to yell my name while I'm trying to pray, Uh, which she was doing today, if you didn't hear that. As soon as I started praying, she starts yelling my name. So that's always exciting. Um, So we're continuing in our uh, 40 days of prayer, like I said Uh, Sorry about the technical difficulties we had. We even prayed over the whole system this morning, uh, and uh, I guess God has something to say to us today, and so uh, the enemy doesn't like that. So he's going to continue to try to distract us and create as many problems as he can, but God is good, and he's going to continue to show up. Uh, It's been an awesome 40 days of prayer, and uh, if you haven't joined us on Sunday nights, we do meet at 5 o'clock. Sunday evenings uh, as we uh, continue to be in a concentrated time of prayer to seek God and uh, to uh, hopefully put into practice a little bit about a little bit of what we're talking about each uh, each Sunday so well I'm gonna let you in on a little uh, belief of mine Uh, in the regards to spiritual warfare now we'll actually get to uh, prayer as spiritual warfare I think it's next week Um, and so uh, but I do want to let you in on a little bit because it sheds some light on what we're going to talk about this morning I believe that there are particular particular sins or struggles that are inherent to certain areas because I believe that there are certain spirits, meaning demonic spirits, that oversee uh, geographical regions. Now, this is, a, this is a Pastor Bruce belief, okay? So you don't have to agree with me on this, but I, I believe that the spiritual realms are set up in a very similar way to the way military is. Uh, they oversee certain regions. If you remember in scriptures, uh, one angel is saying that he was held up by the, by the spirit of a certain region, and so I believe that's kind of how they're set up and things like that. And I tell you this because, I believe that there are certain sins or strongholds which are more prevalent in our region in the region that Dubois finds itself, whether you wanna refer to it as Western Pennsylvania or small rural town, America, Pennsylvania. Um, I believe for our specific region, because I've, uh, if you don't know my past, I've kind of lived all over. I've lived in New Jersey uh, for a time. I know it was rough. Apparently I did something wrong and God was punishing me. Um, But I finally gained his favor again and he let me leave and I went to West Virginia. I've lived in different parts of Pennsylvania, all over Um, and i think i've I've seen this play out i've seen this the truth of this that um, just in certain areas it seems that there are sins that are not unique but inherent to those uh, particular areas Um, we have our own uh, and one of those specific strongholds that I, i believe is inherent to our area is a specific version of pride And as I explain this, hopefully it will resonate with you, whether you grew up here or you're kind of a transplant to this area. It's a version of pride which makes it very difficult to admit when we're hurt and address it in a healthy way. We can't admit when someone hurts us or offends us. I've seen this play out many times. We we feel hurt, we feel offended or betrayed or or, or hurt in some way. So instead of addressing it, the offense, uh, and offering forgiveness, we tend to harbor unforgiveness and claim it's the other person's responsibility, which if you know your scriptures, doesn't make any sense whatsoever. If there is bitterness in our hearts, it is never the other person's responsibility. It can't be, not if you know your scriptures, not if you understand the gospel. It can't work that way. Uh, When we harbor unforgiveness, uh, we cannot claim it's their responsibility to fix that. Because it's what we're holding on to. And we tend to do that because, well, they didn't come to us and ask for forgiveness. This one is one of those that I hear people repeat often. Well, they didn't, they never came to me and asked for forgiveness. So that's why I haven't forgiven them. Because we think that in our anger, We made clear our accusations and hurt. Because we blew up on them and made some accusations and told them what what a dirtbag they are, they should understand what they did to hurt us instead of a healthy conversation about the hurt and the offense. Uh, I can't remember what book it was that I read, but in it they explain like this process of of processing hurts and things in a healthy way, like sitting down when the emotions are not really high and being able to say, hey, this is what you did, this is how it hurt me, and I forgive you. And the power that is in such a simple conversation and Specific to our area, I've, I've seen this is a real struggle. I mean, there are people here in this room. It's why you are hard-pressed to find somebody without a grudge, a grudge against someone else in our area. Take yourself. Do you have a grudge against anybody? Not a church person, maybe a coworker, a neighbor, Maybe someone in this room. Maybe someone who used to be in this room and now attends somewhere else. It seems really odd to be able to find somebody who doesn't have a grudge against somebody else in our area. Why? We hold on to these things. We lack the, uh, uh, I don't want to say ability, but we lack the drive to go and address these things in a healthy way and to release them. Especially... In the church. Even our church. Despite if you've been here a while, you know what does Pastor Bruce talk about just about every communion Sunday? Is that to share communion with each other and hold a grudge is exactly what the scripture is talking about when it says do not take partake of communion in an unworthy manner because to share a meal with someone is to communicate everything is good. The debt is paid. There's nothing on the account relationally between us. It's clear. And some of us have continued, despite the encouragement, have continued to go against that month after month after month after month. We take communion and we continue to harbor bitterness, unforgiveness, or grudges in our hearts. Many of us, have read the next part of Jesus' model of prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12 says, "In forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. If you grew up, especially in the Catholic uh, realm, you know that you probably repeated this hundreds, possibly thousands of times, depending on how, how bad you were. Um, you probably repeated this hundreds, thousands of times. And what I have found to be the case is there are very few people who have any idea how to put this into practice. They will repeat this a thousand times and they do not know how to forgive their debtors. They know how to avoid their debtors. They know how to cut off their debtors. They know how to no longer be in relationship proximity or in business with their debtors. But they have no idea how to release them, how to offer true forgiveness to someone who has genuinely hurt them. Not like a small offense, but like genuine offenses. How do we release those? We've recited it so many times. Do we know how to put it into practice? That same pride that makes it difficult for us to offer forgiveness also makes it difficult for us to confess our own sins even to God and ask forgiveness. I mean, how many of us, you don't have to raise your hands, how many of us have a regular discipline of confession and repentance before the Lord? we wonder why a relationship with God is strained or why we feel distant from him or why we, don't, we just don't feel the power of God. Man, read your New Testament. Read your Old Testament. The act of confession and repentance is baked into the Christian faith. You cannot have it without repentance and confession. That is a cornerstone of the Christian faith. Today, we're gonna to be looking at prayer as confession, we're gonna talk about what Jesus' model of prayer is saying about confession and forgiveness. But first, let's look at confession. Because if we're unable to deal with, our, with sin in our own life in a healthy way, we will never be able to deal with sin in others' lives in a healthy way. Let me just repeat that for some of us, because we need to understand why we can't seem to keep relationships, why we don't seem to have any long-lasting friendships, why we don't talk to our, our, our friend that we had for decades and decades and decades, and then something small happened, and now you don't talk to him, and you haven't talked to him in years, and you just don't understand why. Because if we're unable to deal with sin in our own life in a healthy way, we will never be able to deal with the sin of others in a healthy way. And so we need to learn and understand confession. The first takeaway statement for today for us is confession is a cry for relief from the weight of sin in our lives. If you've been a Christian long enough, then you know what it feels like to hold on to sin. You know what it feels like to have unconfessed sin in your life and to just this constant anxiety and worry that somebody's going to find out and somebody's going to call you on it or somehow it's going to be brought into the light. And there's a weight to sin knowing that our relationship between us and God is marred. it's, it's, It's not healthy. There's a weight to that. If you know your scriptures, you'll know there's a guy named David and David is known as being this awesome warrior, and, and honestly, David has a, a pretty impressive life. Uh, one of the few people God in the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. So if you know your scriptures, you know that David never made a misstep, right? I hope you laugh. I hope you chuckle deeply when someone says something because you, if you've read it, you know, man, David, he messed up royally, and not just like once. And if you actually follow the patterns of David's sins, there is a pattern to it. You think there were just like these random sins and then the sins of his sons uh, and how prevalent they were. There's a pattern to it. But uh, I don't wanna digress too much. If you understand David's story, then you know there's a, a moment where, and if you know what the scripture says, it says when the kings are off to war, where's David? Not at war. He's at home in his palace and he's up on the roof and he sees this woman bathing and he begins to lust after her and he brings her to himself because he's got the power, he can do whatever he want and the power gets to his head and he has this woman brought to him and he sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant And David doesn't want to admit his failure, even though he has the power to do whatever he wants, he feels the weight of sin on him, the shame of it. And so instead of turning to God, what does David do? He turns to himself. He decides that he's going to fix this problem. It's one of the things I loved about the last song that we sang, as Lexi was saying, it's like there's so much power to this. Um, He says, who writes our wrongs in that song? You write our wrongs. And as just as we were singing that, I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't always pay attention to what songs we're gonna sing. I trust Melissa that, that she's gonna pick great songs and she does, she follows the spirit in that. Uh, but as we were singing the song, I'm like, oh man, just look at that. As we're singing the song, you right our wrongs. And how often we try to right our wrongs. We try to fix our sin. We try to, to mend our problems instead of looking to God to do it. So what does David do? David tries to fix his problem and the best way that he knows how to fix his problem is to erase any evidence of the problem so he tries to bring her husband Bathsheba's husband Uriah home and he tries to get him drunk and then so that he'll sleep with his wife and the guy's too upstanding of a person to do that he he knows that he should be at war he's a man of war and he wants to go back to war and he won't even sleep with his wife because he knows this is where I should be i don't want to enjoy things while the other My my friends that I uh, serve with are out dying and fighting, and so he won't even go to his own home. And so David, still trying to cover his own sin and his own power, and he then has him killed in order to cover his sin. This is pretty messed up stuff. I mean, if you read the Bible, it's not PG. Uh, if you you know, I love watching the chosen, but they can't make the chosen for the Old Testament, man. That stuff is not PG. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that happens that's really messed up, and David is right at the heart of this, and he commits this horrible act of sin, having this guy killed uh, in such a terrible way. And if you if you read the callousness of, like, the message when it gets back to David that Uriah's died, he's like, oh, well, you lose some, you win some. It's kind of like his attitude there, and you're like, man, What is wrong with this guy? But you have to understand, we're talking probably a few months of this hidden sin in his life and it's completely destroyed his relationship with God. And then what happens? If you know the end of the, not the end of the story, but at one point God speaks to a prophet and he comes and confronts David and he tells this story of how a rich ruler had had someone come into town and, and there was a poor person that he only had this one little lamb And the rich person goes and steals that person's lamb and kills it for his party, for his guest. Even though he's rich and has a multitude of them, he takes the poor persons. And David's like, ah, he gets all angry about it. He's like, this person should die. And Nathan says what to him? You are the man. And this breaks David. Like he's finally confronted with his sin in an undeniable way. And he writes this psalm. If you've never read Psalm 51 in light of this story, that's what we're going to do right now, um, you have to understand this is where that psalm comes from. And every psalm is a song. And so David, being David, he loves to write songs. He's, He's obviously a very poetic guy. He writes this. This is a heart cry. This is like a desperate, broken person that writes this. Psalm 51 says for the choir director, a Davidic psalm when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight so you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean wash me and I will be whiter than snow let me hear joy and gladness let the bones you have crushed rejoice turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt God create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken Spirit, God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And that is a broken person. If you've ever been in that place of brokenness where you realize, man, I've really messed up. I have broken relationship with God. You know what it's like to resonate with David's heart here, to feel that brokenness. You might also know what it's like to fake that, to try to make it seem like you feel bad about your sin, but you haven't gotten to the place of brokenness yet. I used to work a lot with uh, people that were coming out of addiction And it was just, there was such a clear difference between people who were done with it, who were broken by it, who were just done, and the people who were still trying to hang on just a little bit. And it reminds me so, I mean, I see the same spirit in the church of people who are still just trying to hang on a little bit to their sin. They're not quite done with their old life. They're still dragging that dead body along when Christ has made us a new one. They want to drag that old one along because, well, maybe there's still some fun left in it. Or there's some comfort in there, or there's some control, or whatever it is. But David, he committed a horrific sin to cover his previous sin. He just keeps stacking sin upon sin upon sin. After months of no expression of remorse or guilt, he's confronted by God through Nathan, the prophet. David is desperate. He's feeling the guilt and he knows that he has failed God. He knows that if he doesn't do something to lighten the weight of shame on his shoulders, his brokenness will kill him. You hear that in this psalm. He's recognizing like, God, I can't continue on like this. If you don't meet me in this brokenness, if you don't heal me of this horrific sin, I can't go on. He wants to talk to God. He knows what God can do. And that's the difference. That's why when you read Hebrews 11, uh, what they call the hall of faith, David's name is listed there because yeah, man, he messed up royally. But who does he go to? He goes to God. He seeks God out. And that, I used to be so confused by Hebrews 11 because I'm like, I'm reading this. And at first it was like, yeah, these people are great. And then I actually read my Bible. And I'm like, Samson, David, Jephthah, Gideon. These guys are terrible. These are like the worst characters. I mean, pick Joseph. Like, there's not even anything he does wrong that you can like point at. Like, pick some of the good guys. And it's like they picked some of the worst in this hall of faith. And you're like, these guys all got like weird, messed up stuff going on in their life. But when they messed up, they went after God. And what a lesson for us to learn is that you're not gonna make it through this light without messing up. I mean, you're gonna mess up bad. But seek God. Don't try to fix it yourself. Don't try to patch it up or stack sin upon sin upon sin. This broken place that David gets to, that is why I believe God says, he's a man after my own heart. Because when he was in that valley, that darkest place, that really broken spot, He sought God, and that is counted to him as righteousness. We must acknowledge the debilitating effects of sin. Whatever sin it is that's weighing on you, you might think it's not that big a deal. And if you've ever been in that place where you're like, ah, it's not that big a deal, and then you finally get to that broken place and you finally confess that sin and you feel the weight come off, and it's like, man, I never even realized how much weight that was. That was so much weight, and I thought it was not that big a deal. David recognized his behavior as depraved, as corrupt, as completely disconnected from God. He acknowledged it finally. And in Psalm uh, chapter 32, verses three to five, it depicts the painful reality that guilt and shame will do to us. It says, when I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Salah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you took away the guilt of my sin. Salah. Recognize that the weight that you're carrying of unconfessed sin, it is far greater than you realize. You've been carrying it long enough that you think it's not that big a deal. You've been carrying the weight long enough that you don't realize how heavy it is. I don't, I don't know if you, any of you have ever run with any of those like weighted ankle weights or like a weighted vest or anything like that. I don't recommend it. I don't recommend running. I hate it. Um, but I've done that. And then like you, you get used to the weight, and especially those weighted vests. Man, you can fit like 50, 60 pounds in those things. Uh, and I don't like running with the weight I have. But uh, you get done and you finally take it off and you're like, oh my goodness, Like that is amazing when that weight finally comes off. You got used to it while you were working out or running or things like that. And then you finally get to remove the weight and it's just amazing, that feeling, that glorious feeling. And that's what it's like with unconfessed sin. And we have to also acknowledge you might think you're hiding your sin, but if you're in close relationship with people, they probably recognize something's wrong, especially if you've got this sin that's been hanging over you and you're disconnected from God. That stuff that's why some of us don't have close relationships, is because we can't have that and our sin and it not get shown, and so we try to avoid people. We try to keep all of our relationships surfacey so that our sin doesn't get brought to the surface in those relationships, because we know, Numbers chapter 32, verses 23 says, but if you don't do this, you will certainly sin against the Lord. Be sure your sin will catch up with you. Some of us know this verse. We understand this reality, and so we say, well, if it's gonna find come out and be found out eventually i'll just avoid people i'll just avoid close relationships and so that will hide my sin better and that's exactly where satan wants us we're so much easier to pick off when we're alone and disconnected from the family and outside of community so god what does he do does he just allow david's sin to come out naturally I mean, can you imagine a more shameful and horrific moment than God revealing your sin to a prophet and then sending that prophet to tell you a little parable and then you get super fired up about this parable and this story and you want to kill this, this rich ruler that took this guy's lamb and then, man, Nathan just hits him right between the eyes. You are the man. About the only time you ever say that and it's not a good thing. Like, every guy wants to hear, you're the man. Not that time. So, the next thing that this points out that confession accomplishes is confession makes Christ the rightful owner of our sin and shame. And that is a humbling place to be. David found no other option but to trust in God. He doesn't try to balance his sin with his good service record he doesn't try to sit there and say well yeah nathan i understand like i did a bad thing but you gotta understand i won this battle i won that battle i did this i killed goliath when no one else would i stood up and i was brave and he doesn't go that route why because he experienced true brokenness you're still trying to argue with god if you're still trying to convince god that you're a good person and that you really don't have to confess because you have all this, you have this huge good service record and maybe you have a title before your name, elder, deaconess, whatever, pastor. God's not interested in any of that. David throws himself toward God's mercy when he seeks forgiveness. At the center of God's grace and mercy is his willingness to own The sin that affects us. He doesn't just erase it. What Christ did on the cross was transfer ownership of our sin and our shame to Himself. That's what He did. He paid the price in blood when He hung on the cross. On the cross, He took the weight of sin and its effects. On himself that weight that you feel when you have unconfessed sin that shame that you feel when you think about who you used to be or that huge sin that you've committed in your past or maybe the one that you're currently hiding christ took all of that on himself now he can own every sin that breaks our back that keeps us awake at night, that demands to be hidden from others and remove ourselves from community and affects our character. That sin is his now. He owns it. And I can promise you he's not giving it back. When we hand him that sin, when we hand him our brokenness, he takes it. And then it's, as he says, as far as the east is from the west, he removes it. The blood of Christ washes it clean God is sufficient to handle our sin. It'll never be too much for him. As believers, probably, I would guess, we rarely question if God can handle the amount of sin we carry. I think when we, when we, especially if we have a proper understanding of who God is, we're like, yeah, I get it. He can handle it. He's God. He can take it on himself. Our problem is if we trust him enough to confess the sins to him to lay them down at his feet and make him the owner of our shame. And that's a tough place to be. That is a humbling place to be, to slide our sin over to Jesus, our shame over to him and say, okay, it's yours now. Our pride will keep us from that if we don't truly understand who God is and we're not in deep relationship with him and understand the beautiful moment that is when we transfer that to him and his willingness to take that from us. Jesus is the only one that can claim, own, and dispose of our sin. He's the only one. You'll never do it. You'll never accomplish it. You can try to work your brain apart to try to fix that sin. You can try to serve as much as you can possibly serve. You can try to read your Bible as many times as you want to read that thing over from cover to cover. You will not dispose of your own sin. You can't wash it clean. You cannot own it without being crushed and killed by it. Only Jesus can. Listen to David ask God to do what only he can in that psalm. He says, wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. Man, if there was a guy who had enough piled onto his account that he could say, well, I'll just pay for that sin with uh, my battle with Goliath. I'll just transfer those two and they'll cancel each other out. He recognizes it doesn't work that way. There's no like, well, I'm a pretty good person, so I'll probably get into heaven. He recognizes only God can cleanse him. Only God can wash away that guilt. And as the owner of our sins, God tells us what he does with the sins that we confess to him, that we transfer to his ownership. David understood this when he says later in the psalm, turn your face away from my sins and blot out all of my guilt. And he writes in another psalm, Psalm 103, 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. David gets it. Like he's in this broken place and he knows only God can fix this, but he also knows what God's gonna do with that sin that he gives over to him. He knows God can handle it and so God should be the rightful owner. And the awesome thing about God is his ownership of our sin is not about coveting power over us. It's not like the... Probably, I don't know, I don't even deal with the whole political stuff, but, um, you know, if you have some, someone's, you know, the, the skeletons in their closet, then you have power over them because you know their sins, and all you got to do is bring them out, and you can blackmail them into doing things. That's not what God's about. He's not like, well, I know all your sins, so now you got to serve me and do what I want, or else I'm going to tell everybody about your sin. That's not what God is doing. He extends mercy and grace when we need it, because we need it, and how we need it. That's who God is. Well, what, what an awesome God we serve. Through confession, we experience one of the greatest things that we get to experience from God, forgiveness. And man, if you, re, if you were old enough to remember when you asked God to wipe your sin out that, that first time, that when, when you were asking him to save you, do you remember what it felt like? those first days when you became a Christian, when you asked God to take all your sin and become the owner of it all, what it felt like to walk around without the weight of that sin, it was amazing. Forgiveness is a privilege through which we get to enjoy God's blessings. And it is an awesome privilege. Psalm 5110, later, he says, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Man, if you're here this morning and, and, and you're holding on to sin and you don't have that clean heart, that's a powerful prayer. God created me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. What power there is in that clean heart, steadfast spirit. You probably, if, 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 you're not in good relationship with god you can probably think back to a time when you could say i had a steadfast spirit i was on fire for god and there was a steadfastness to my relationship with him why isn't it the way that it used to be this is probably a good reason why there is some unconfessed sin somewhere. And you might get offended by it, but I can tell you now, if you ever come up for a prayer, uh, for like a healing, if there's ever something going on, probably gonna end up asking you somewhere in that, is there any unconfessed sin? Because mm-hmm. I can pray until the cows come home and nothing's gonna happen until we confess our sin and we have a clean bill between us and god until we acknowledge because what happens in that place david didn't get prideful when he confessed his sin it's not like oh man that's gone i guess i'm perfect again there was a humility that came over him when he confessed that sin we experience incredible peace and joy when we are forgiven and satan seeks to rob us of this and to keep us from these blessings, by convincing us to deal with our own problems, ourselves, and the only methods we have through that, are guilt and shame. That's how we deal with our sin. It's the best tools we have, is guilt and shame. The reality is that as believers, we don't have to offer forgiveness but we get to it's not like we're going to drop over dead if someone does something we d- we decide i'm not going to forgive them because they haven't asked me to yet but we get to we get to do what god did with us and to offer forgiveness to others when they wrong us and when we fail to forgive it affects our body our mind And our spirit, it's not just a a decision to hold that person captive. If you ever heard the saying, uh, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to get sick. That's what it is. That's the reality of unforgiveness. And I say we don't have to. I mean, the Bible commands us to, so spiritually speaking, we have to. But yeah, you can just continue along with that unforgiveness, with those grudges, with that problem that you have with people. You can choose not to forgive, but you get to offer forgiveness. You get the privilege of releasing that and not having to carry someone else's sin on your shoulders. You can't own it. You're not Jesus. <laughs> it will crush you. And that's why there is so much bitterness and so much anger and so, much, so many problems, especially in the church between people, because we can't own other people's sin. You don't get to own it and try to hold it over someone's head because it will kill you. The effect's of unforgiveness are devastating in especially the believer think about people you know how many people don't talk to a family member because of unforgiveness because of something they did and they're still holding that person on the hook and it's always about what that person did and it's always their problem and it's always them 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 and how terrible they are that's why i don't talk to them anymore how many people have lost friends because of unforgiveness? Well, I'm just, I, I, I just can't be that person's friend anymore because they did something. I'm sorry, have you read the gospel? Do you understand? Like, God is our friend and we have wronged him more than any human being will ever wrong us on the face of this planet. There is no human that could do worse than what we've done to Jesus and he still calls us friend. He adopts us and brings us in as his children. How many people have left churches because of unforgiveness and they bounce from church to church to church to church because they can't they've never learned how to offer forgiveness they've never learned how to have that conversation i mean i am not whenever i preach i'm never trying to create shame or guilt that's that's the enemy but we do have to talk about realities how many people have been to one two three four five churches in their area some of us here, it might be the case for us. I hope it's not because of unforgiveness. If it is, then go have that conversation. Go deal with that. It's one of the things, if you've been a part of my membership class, I will not allow people to continue in our membership class if they're coming from another church in our area and haven't had a conversation with their pastor. I won't do it. I'm not interested in padding our pews. <laughs> they're warm enough. We don't need more warm butts in our pews, especially warm butts that have unforgiveness and bitterness. We need to go and have those conversations. Go and, uh, even if someone desperately wronged you and you feel like you can't ever be in that place anymore, more often than not, you just need to go go back to that church because that's where you're gonna find the healthiest relationship with Jesus. Because once you have that conversation, once you offer that forgiveness, once you acknowledge the hurt, you're gonna feel more deeply connected to those people than you've ever felt before. That's the power of forgiveness, confession and forgiveness. It's this awesome thing. Dr. Frederick Luston, he's a co-founder of the Stanford Forgiveness Project, reports that the chemical reaction known as the stress response occurs when when we fail to forgive somebody. And this reaction occurs when adrenaline, cortisol, and norepinephrine, I know you all know exactly what those are, enters the body and it limits creativity, problem solving, and with time it leads to feelings of helplessness and feeling victimized, I don't know if you've paid any attention to the upcoming generations, but they get this victim mentality, and they have no idea how to address certain problems. I, I saw uh, an interesting reel the other day uh, as I was uh, I watched reels to pretty much laugh, and I send Jackie like hundred a day of <laughs> funny stuff I see. I saw one that talked about like the, uh, the generation that we're, or the culture that we're in, not just that generation, but it, it's like we're the most self-aware that we've ever been because we all know like our problems and we're like, I have really high anxiety and it's like, okay, so what are you, what are you doing about the anxiety? And it's like, well, I'm not doing anything. I'm telling you so you can work around it. And it's like, oh, hold on, what? Like, that's not how it works, you know? Uh, we, we understand all of our problems and we un- maybe even understand other people's, but we don't know how to interact and address it, and deal with it, and offer forgiveness, and receive forgiveness. I mean, I've seen, I've been a part of relationships, conversations where someone offers forgiveness, and the person's genuinely offended that someone offered forgiveness to them. Like, who are you to offer me forgiveness? Uh, It's called Christianity. Welcome to the club. Uh, We offer it and receive it frequently because we're constantly messing up. And having the art of repentance, man, that, that is... Should be standard Christianity 101 repentance and forgiveness, confession and forgiveness. To forgive as one has been forgiven is a sign of humility, not weakness. To acknowledge that somebody has hurt you and to have that healthy conversation and to offer forgiveness, that's not weakness. To then also look at somebody and say, I'm sorry. That's not weakness. The enemy convinces people that that's weakness. There's humility in being able to say, I am sorry. Will you forgive me? I mean, in our marriage, I can't understand how, where we'd be if I didn't learn how to be able to say, hey, I'm sorry. That was, that was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. Uh, I shouldn't have been as sarcastic as I always am. Will you forgive me? And Jackie and I have always had a, a pact. If you don't have this in your marriage, I'd highly recommend it. When someone says, or acknowledges something they've done wrong, if she says something to me or I say something to her, that, hey, I'm sorry for this, we never, we're not allowed to say, oh, no big deal, don't worry about it. Because it is a big deal, or else I wouldn't have addressed it. And so we always, and we're teaching our kids to do the same thing, to respond with, I forgive you. Because it acknowledges the transaction that just occurred. It doesn't just brush it away or brush it under the rug. It's, it's a whole lot easier to hold on to a grudge when you say, oh, don't worry about it, than to look someone in the eyes and say, I forgive you. There's so much power to that. Forgiveness is a choice we make. Then it is a process. See, some of us have thought like, oh, forgiveness is that one choice. I forgave them, and then the enemy reminds you, hey, remember that that dirt bag and what they did to you? And you're like, yeah, I don't wanna talk to them anymore. I did forgive them, but I'm not going to forget. We don't realize forgiveness is a process. Forgiveness is a process that we need to repeat every single time that hurt comes back up. Every time it resurfaces in our heart or in our mind, we again offer that forgiveness, and we offer it again and again and again and again until the power of that hurt, it loses its power, and the enemy loses That's what we're being called to. Not the one time conversation where you forgive them and then you continue to hold it over them because the hurt isn't done yet. So, what can we take away from what we talked about today? How do we put this into practice? When we have a healthy discipline. Of confession a healthy discipline in our own life of confession between us and god we can learn how to offer the gifts of mercy and grace and love that we have received from god to other people we can offer that same forgiveness to them so one of my first questions as we close is do you have any unconfessed sin in your life And I promise you, you're not helping anybody. You're not fooling anybody. You're not winning anything by hiding it. But to honestly have a conversation, speaking of David again, one of David's prayers that I've learned to incorporate into my prayer life constantly and frequently is, search my heart, O God, and reveal any way in me that is dishonoring to you. Reveal anything in my heart, in my mind, in my life, in my actions that I'm not currently aware of that goes against your character, God, and reveal it to me so that I can, I can go through the process of confession, repentance, and forgiveness. If you don't have a regular discipline, like we were talking about with the kids, like if it's not part of your daily routine, you're not doing it right. <laughs> because if you're like the rest of humanity, you probably don't make it a full 24 hours before you mess up and do something wrong. Most of you probably won't make it through the drive home before you do something or say something to somebody uh, and their driving ability that you don't particularly care for. I wouldn't probably do well even if I lived a mile from here. Um, I tend to like to comment on people's driving. So my wife knows. Uh, Ask God to forgive you so that you can forgive yourself. We we are the first person we need to learn how to do the whole forgiveness thing with. Because if we can't if we can't forgive ourselves, man, we're not going to be forgiving other people. We're going to forgive them the same way, same way we forgive ourselves, which is by acknowledging the hurt and then holding on to it. And that's not forgiveness. That's not a transfer of ownership, which is what forgiveness is. Whatever that sin is that Satan frequently reminds you of, whenever you're having like a good day or when you listen to that worship song and you you feel close to God and Satan goes, oh, hey, don't forget. Remember this sin? I mean, come on, we all have that. The enemy has that tactic. He tries to remind you of that sin. First, confess it to God, especially if you've never gone through that process, but confess it to God. And here's something I want you to begin to practice. Then look yourself in the mirror and speak it out loud god has forgiven you and so i forgive you to yourself in a mirror and see what power that has in your life as you learn how to forgive yourself for the things that you have done whether they were pre-christ or post-salvation God will forgive you. He wants the opportunity. He looks forward to the time when you will transfer that ownership to him. How long have you been holding on to a hurt from someone else? And I know, I know, it's their fault. They should take the next step. They should be the one to mend those bridges. They should be the one to come to you. At least that's what Satan has convinced you of that the ball is in their court and it's up to them to mend that to ask for forgiveness to beg you for your favor again except for Hebrews chapter 12 verses 14 to 15 says pursue peace with everyone and holiness without it no one will see the Lord make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble, and by it, defiling many. Pursue peace. This isn't saying welcome peace. This isn't saying accept peace. This word pursue reminds me of like when, if you don't know, I met Jackie online. We were online daters. And like, I had to pursue her, messaging her, Telling her, like, hey, I want to go on a date. And uh, there was a pursuit that happened. I wouldn't just sit back and go, ah, she'll message me at some point. Like, there was a pursuit. There was an active working to see something happen. That's what this is saying. Pursue peace. Cut off the roots of bitterness. Some of us, yeah, someone has hurt you. They hurt you bad and it still hurts, it still stings to this day, and you have listened to what the enemy has convinced you of, and you believe it's their responsibility now. But if there's still a root of bitterness in you, that's your responsibility, not theirs. They can't come to you and fix that. That's a problem between you and Jesus. And so pursue peace. Do whatever it takes to cut off the roots of bitterness because it will defile you, this verse is saying. And man, the way that bitterness will destroy people. We probably all know somebody who we know, they're just a bitter person. Anybody know a really bitter person who is a joy to be around? Because I've never met one. They're ruined the roots of bitterness have grown to trees of bitterness and just wreck their life. It's not okay if it's just a root. Scripture says cut it off. And keep doing it every time they regrow. Because as I find out every spring, a stinking weeds always come back. And the roots of bitterness will continue to come back. And so you continue to cut them off and you continue to offer forgiveness and ask for forgiveness. And this process just goes on and on and on and on and on until one day you'll stand before Jesus. And that's when you can set this aside and be done with it. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have forgiven me. Lord, when I sit and begin to think about who I was when I met you, when I think about my trajectory, who I was becoming, who I would have become had you not rescued me, God, it breaks me because without you I am ruined. So thank you for rescuing me, God. Thank you for transferring the ownership of my sin to your account. And that you didn't then hold that over me, but you completely canceled it out through the blood of Jesus. Lord, I pray for anybody here in this place who hasn't ever experienced that blessing of what it is to be restored, to have the clean spirit, the steadfastness, that clean heart that David talks about, God. I pray that you would help them to experience that today, that you would break them to the point of true brokenness and they would reach out to you, they would seek you for forgiveness and experience that amazing transaction God, I pray for those of us that have walked with you, that are walking with you, that we would be experts at confession and forgiveness, that the church would become a place where there aren't grudges, where we're not the worst at this, but the best at it, the best at offering forgiveness, the best at repentance, the best at constantly cleaning out the records. And not allowing the roots of bitterness to grow, that this would be a place where no roots of bitterness are allowed, Holy Spirit, would you cut them off right now in the name of Jesus? And would bitterness not be found in this place? Thank you, Jesus, for the beauty of confession and forgiveness. Would we experience in it, experience it in a more powerful and profound way this week. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen, I want you to come prepared next week. We're gonna try something out. The last Sunday of every month, we're gonna do a little portion of our service we're gonna call Manifest Moments, and it's gonna be a testimony time. So if God's doing something in your life and you have a story, bring it next week, and we'll have a little open sharing time of what God's doing in our life, okay? Have a great week.